Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Joe Tafur back on the program. Joe has been an integrative medicine activist throughout his medical career while in medical school at UCSD and during his family medicine residency at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Tafur has observed that modern medicine struggles with certain mental and psychosomatic health problems because it fails to address the emotional and spiritual dimensions of these illnesses. Under the guidance of master shamans, Dr. Tafur has learned about the importance of acknowledging the emotional body and its role in modern disease. Welcome back, Joe. Uh, it's nice to be back. Thank you for having me, Marla. Yes, you're very welcome. And, and if the listeners hear anyone in the background, that is his darling aunt who is, <laughs> who is chatting. Yeah, it's chatting away. Louder so. and louder. So, so today I would love to, we've talked a little bit about ayahuasca and your journey, and today I want to talk some about your new talk, which is Spirituality Loves Science. I think that's what it is. Yeah, spiritual healing. Spiritual healing loves science, yeah. Spiritual healing loves science, yes. So let's, let's begin talking a little bit about the science of plant medicine and just not not very long but briefly about epigenetics and yeah just talking about that a little bit yeah, i think we'll jump into that is that plant the work i did with or that i do with plant medicine kind of informed and you know one of the kind of theses of the, of the book my book is that epigenetics would be potentially a place where um trauma imprints would be stored you know where it's kind of a form of cellular memory and so there's it's not just me there's a lot of research and papers about uh epigenetics uh, holding like the imprint of certain traumatic events that that would be that that would linger there and so around like the acute childhood or what are the adverse childhood experiences and childhood trauma the way that somebody could become imprinted in a, in a world would be kind of a stable fashion it would be stabilized right stay with them for a really long time and then there's growing body of research showing even that you know ancestral trauma there's it's speculative but this like rachel yehuda's work with the concentration camp survivors and their descendants that those people are carrying this increased prevalence of of anxiety among the children of concentration camp survivors is not necessarily from their parenting or environmental experience, but maybe a direct result of epigenetic imprinting from the concentration camp trauma that's being passed on. Right. Can you, Joe, can you define epigenetics for those who don't know what that, yeah. what that means? Epigenetics basically refers to the science 
and the mechanisms uh, around the way that the genetic code, the expression of the genes can be modulated. So that you have different, you, know, you have your genes, the hardwired blueprint of you, but then it turns out there's a huge amount of versatility in how those genes are expressed. So you have two twins that have the same DNA and yet they have different, you know, uh, phenotypes, different physical aspects to themselves and different other, many other aspects, uh, whether it's personality or, you know, other aspects of their physiology even, would be different even though they have the same DNA code because their epigenetics is being affected differently by their personal lives. Right. What they eat, how they live, you know, what they're exposed to. And as it turns out, emotional stressors and, uh, and things like that. Well, I know you found that emotions play a huge, a huge role in disease and that trauma, past trauma. And I was really fascinated by the story, um, about the, the girl that had the migraine. And um, yeah. can you just tell that, that a little bit about that, please? Sure, yes, I talk about that in the book and it's, uh, I call her Lisa in the book. It's a friend of mine that I still am in touch with and continues to do well. And so then she was struggling with migraines and that's one of the reasons she came down and there was much more severe with, uh, with, her, with her menstruation. And then, so a lot of people suffer with migraines you know, different things set them off, whether it is like a menstrual cycle, hormonal cycles, or also uh, sensory input, you know, light, certain flavors, certain smells, certain sounds, you know, that push people into this kind of sensory overload and they get into this some kind of maladaptive pattern. And so there's some research, you know, that I had never come across previously, was never exposed to in my medical training. Um, around the, the role of, of, of childhood trauma or childhood stress contributing to migraine headaches. You know, as a doctor, we're just kind of taught that that's just a mysterious problem, has some genetic element, you know? So there's this question around, okay, there's a genetic element, but then there's also this epigenetic element. You know, there's a part that might be hardwired. You have these people who have these genetic vulnerabilities or tendencies, but then some people don't express them and other people do. So what is it around that? What, what, what leads to some genes being turned on or off or modulated in some way that would lead to this problem versus them not having a problem? This idea is that migraine headache. Uh, I had, with being up there at the center for a while and exposed to a lot of different people, I had kind of gotten the feel for that some of these people, not all, but some of the migraine, and headache cases were I've been through a lot of like um, sensory overload in their childhoods through like a lot of aggression and screaming and rage that they've been exposed to and I'm not saying that's always the case at all but in the cases of people that were coming where I spent a lot more time with them in a retreat center than I would have as a doctor and I kept getting that kind of feedback and so I asked her is that, is that the case for you it was the case for her. Her dad was a really kind of a rageful person that was very loving at some times, but at other times was very, very uh, aggressive and the kind of person that would, you know, throw the dinner off the table and, you know, flip things over. And so she had that history. And so then I also started, you know, afterwards I did research and as into this, like the uh, maladaptive stress response that, that there was research 
around that, that this concept, and that's what I was bringing up, is that before as a doctor, I'd never really been exposed to that thinking that somehow migraine headaches would be aggravated by a childhood trauma or that that would be something to focus on in their treatment. And so in her case, we decided to go at it with the, with the, the traditional treatment that we offered at the center, which is traditional plant medicine and, you know, the diet, the strict diet with the Shipibo traditional diet, and then eventually ayahuasca ceremony. And her ayahuasca ceremonies turned out to be completely about her father and purging out and letting go and forgiving him <clears throat> and learning about developing compassion for him for all that he had been through in his own life and why did he act like that and how was he and, and then also accepting him as, as he is that he may never change and she needed to address that. So she went through this deep spiritual process around that in these ceremonies, this deep emotional healing process. And that led to this tremendous shift in her symptoms that continues to lead to what looks like, you know, at least years of, you know, at this stage looks permanent. And I guess you could say from really severe migraine headaches. Right. And in that process, I had in my visionary state, you know, I was, informed by the ayahuasca that was my experience while i was working on her and working with her that you know i was informed that this is an epigenetic problem in her case literally like using those terms that it wasn't in her genes it was on her genes right. the problem and that that was the focus it wasn't something she's you know it's not a, a genetic destiny as you know people kind of say Oh, well, your parents had this, or you're going to have this, right. that kind of thinking. And it's like, actually, this may not, this may be as, as I talk about in the book, a soft problem, not a hardware problem. And so is it possible to shift that software? And the evidence is her decreasing symptoms. So the answer is yes. Yes. In her case. Yes. And I know you said that. I think it was yourself or someone in the kind of visionary state seeing black in the, her actual genes that, you know, the bad stuff you actually saw. That. Yeah. yeah. Well, I said, well, what I saw was I saw like I was looking at this would look like this, what we call it the chromatin, you know, the DNA wrapped around the, the storage protein molecules that it's it's wrapped around and packaged in right so then that is what forms the chromatin that like you know can be congealed into the chromosomes or stored in different forms within the uh within the cell and so then that has and it's molecular kind of the way we understand it and see it like these balls these beads you know packaged together and it has all these nooks and crannies in between uh all the surface of that and I saw a little black dragon swimming through the cracks and crevices wow. of that over the top of the genes. And that's when I received the message that it was, it was that. It was the story of the trauma, the energy of that swimming over the genes. Mm -hmm. That was the, the, the root of a problem. You know, Joe, when she came to you, did she even consider it might be something in her childhood or was it just like, I'm having these headaches. I just, can you, can you help? Mm, yeah. I don't know that she had really connected the dots. I mean, right, she that right. stress, made, stress made it worse. I think a lot of migraine people understand that stress makes it worse, but I don't think that they would necessarily, she didn't connect it to a particular stress that may have like 
set it off that maybe yes. started her on that path. Said, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe I just get headaches when, when my dad yells. Right, right. But it's not like I get headaches because my dad yells. Right, right. You know, that was the difference. And I know the forgiveness part is a huge, huge part of that too, you know, seeing it and then forgiving. And, and isn't it true that many times people see things that they don't even remember, that they didn't even know about? That happens all the time. And so there is there is a little bit of room there for when you have to kind of maybe some things need to be verified. You know, right. so there is there is it's very common for repressed memories to be brought up. Or sometimes people have the memory, but they don't have any associated feeling. Like feelings around those memories have been shut down. Right. And so they re-experience um it gets reopened. You know, there's sensory input around that particular memory or the emotional memory around that experience gets reopened. It was previously like shut down and frozen. And then all of a sudden, because the, you know, because of the, the psychedelics, it appears that one of the, one of the ways that would happen is through this, there's a default mode network is one of the neural networks that has been identified in the brain that is involved in a lot of your autobiographical story of yourself and how you kind of filter life, you know, how you filter the world outside you, how you filter what you feel inside. And then it actually has been uh, described as almost like the neural correlate of the ego, like your sense of yourself. And then sometimes whether it's ayahuasca or some other psychedelic treatments that dissolves you know right they lose that sense of themselves but what ends up happening is it also it kind of opens reopens gates that have previously been shut down so then once you open those gates sometimes what's stored within the being within their body within other aspects of themselves all of a sudden they get a flood of emotional memories and then where does the the heat so they, they get this flood of emotional memories and the healing the healing happens and the re first is in the, the is is in the properly supported scenario yes in which now they can complete you know that's like you're going to talk to martina soon and somatic experience therapy is like a, is a big model for how this kind of trauma healing happens the idea is that there's a frozen trauma that has not, has, not com has not completed its process, you know, right. interrupted. And so then it has to be completed. Yes. Has, but there needs to be the right kind of support and safety in order for that level of vulnerability to be, let's say, grieved right. or released, the catharsis. You know, that maybe it just happens little bits at a time, but there's a de-escalation that needs to happen. And so that's why they, you know, that's what somatic experience therapy is all about. And like I said, Martin's going to explain it more, but there's a big overlap with shamanism um, according to the theories that, that they put forth where based on this idea of the biology of a frozen trauma where an antelope, you know, gets attacked by a tiger and then when they think they're going to die, when it's too late for them, they just freeze. Then they need to shake that off. That they literally shake 
that energy off. And somehow they're able to de-escalate from that kind of locked up fear response and get back to a baseline. And so that is a, so there's some kind of emotional biology around trauma and fear response that there needs to be a de-escalation. Right. And so there's something, you know, it's more complicated than that, I'm sure, but there's just ways of talking about it, that there's some catharsis and some release that needs to happen so that you can move forward in the process. It's kind of like, you know, one way to think about it for me in the scientific perspective is, is this chronic inflammation. You know, you have this, a wound, let's say. I studied for a little while. I studied uh, delayed wound healing. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have like a diabetic wound or some other like wound problem where it's not healing or even a chronic uh, uh, joint problem, inflammation. And then somehow you get into this like chronic inflammation where inflammation was supposed to be part of the healing process. Right. You injure yourself, then there's the swelling, there's the redness, there's the pain, there's the heat. You know, that's the classic inflammatory response. And that's supposed to lead somewhere. When you have a wound cut open on your skin, then you also, there's an inflammatory process that goes on there. And then that can turn into a chronic inflammatory process and not progress to what is the healing, you know? So in other words, you're stuck in the beginning of the response and you haven't, it hasn't gone to full, the wound, you know, a little bit of scarring, a little remodeling. That's what goes on in the wounds. And so you need to guide the person through the completion of the healing process. And the initial response was, okay, this is how you respond in the acute phase. And then you get stuck in that acute phase response. So the person has this frozen trauma. They're reacting to a helicopter flying overhead 30 years after Vietnam, as if it was Vietnam. Yes. You know? Yes. Frozen trauma. So it's like this, this is a very real phenomenon that people get stuck. They get triggered, you know? So that's something that happens. Once people go through a big healing process, they find themselves less triggered. Mm-hmm. When they have a difficult relationship with their mom, they, so I've had a few people come through the treatment in Peru where they leave, they weren't sure what really happened, did something happen or not, and then they get home, they go, you know, I could talk to my mom on the phone, I just did not even react. Yeah. You know? So that is a, that's an actual, phys- there's a physiology around that. Right. You know, you're, the way you are triggered, the way your actual body, emotional, physiology is triggered mm-hmm. by what's going on. And so then there's the frozen stuff, stuff that's trapped from the past that is there in a way to protect you. So there's a lot of reason to be, have adaptive stress response where you'd actually, you know, if it's a lion or something or something that's really dangerous for you, yes, you, you do want to freak out when you see that. But there's other things, other traumas that don't really lead to any adaptive response being abused as a child doesn't really go anywhere. Right. You know, it just accumulates and it, it stays in there. And then you have to de-escalate that. You have to help process that through. You have to help resolve that, take that beyond just the initial frozen response that might end up being just a, a general distrust for other human beings that doesn't serve that person. So it's, it's a little complex, but it's, it's a little, I think it is, it is possible to understand and relate to. Absolutely. And so it seems that the epigenetics, the epigenetics are an area, we're still learning a lot about it, still speculative, 
But there is reason to believe that, yeah, that would be part of where this kind of memory happens. Mm -hmm. Well, I, um, I realize as I listen to you talk and also listen to your, to your other lectures that kind of the proof is in the pudding. You know, you see these, you see these people come through that have been going through all kinds of traditional Western therapy and drug, pharmaceutical drugs, and nothing has worked. You know, you talk about the Vietnam War vet, I know, in your, in your book, and nothing, nothing works. And then they do come and do plant medicine. And those, it seems that those genes or those that that blackness in the genes or the epigenetics, it does, it softens and you see a lot of healing. So that certainly speaks for itself. Exactly. So then the latest version of that and then the follow because then we, I got into that and then with epigenetics and what ayahuasca was kind of uh, revealing to me. But so then we thought, oh, let's do research with that. Let's do epigenetics you know, with ayahuasca treatment, but it was, it was difficult to, to coordinate. And then meanwhile, while we're considering that the MAPS trial is running with MDMA assisted psychotherapy for treatment resistant PTSD. So they already have like all the, you know, the variables controlled as, as much as they can and they've screened the people and they're tracking them through this psychotherapy course. That includes three uh, sessions with MDMA, mm-hmm. uh, which are run under under a protocol. Uh, there's kind of advanced techniques that they've developed, and so they're doing that for people with treatment resistant PTSD. And they're getting their gathering is uh, something like 18 years. So somebody's had 18 years of stable PTSD that's not getting better. It's not responding to medication. One year out. They say 67% of them no longer have PTSD. So that is a revolution in psychiatry. Yes. Like the proof is in the pudding. It's like game over. Right. So where PTSD, where we know that there is studies and evidence to indicate that these people do have epigenetic imprints around certain gene regions that are related to their prior trauma that are, are correlated to their PTSD severity. So there's reason to believe that they're showing that kind of a dramatic response from 18 years of struggling with the problem to not even having the problem a year later, that something's shifting in their biology. Yes. And so that's what we're trying. That's the modern spirit epigenetics project. I love it when you say science is not medicine. It is important, but it is not medicine. Medicine heals even spiritual medicine. And science should not limit healing work. So let's segue into the spiritual healing, love science, and about bridging the, the two worlds. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance, once again, we talked about this before, but the ceremony, the importance of the song, the Icaros, and, um, and you j- just talking about love. What is, what is love and how this all yeah. plays into this healing process? Well, I think like the segue for me is looking at this MDMA assisted psychotherapy trial and even the psilocybin assisted psychotherapy research where, or even the Johns Hopkins stuff where they got these mystical experiences and all that. So then they, you know, you can, you can kind of like paint 
around the perimeter and say, oh yeah, the study shows this and the people, like the proof is in the pudding. They had these major shifts, you know, no doubt about it. And it meets all the, the standards. But then the big question is, well, what happened during those sessions? Right. And what's going on there? And in the case of the MDMA uh, psychotherapy trial, I went to the training and I met some of the, the trainers and the therapists and I watched the videos. And these people are extremely graceful human beings that need to really, uh, like one of the lead trainers talked about, well, you can only take someone as far as you're ready to go. And so what does that mean? And that's very much along the lines of the traditional like shamanic training in the Amazon, where to really learn how to work with people in those kind of states uh, is to determine your ability to do that is determined by how far you've gone in your own personal healing process. Mm -hmm. How far are you willing to go into facing your own fears and traumas and insecurities and pain? Uh, is actually what's going to determine your ability to hold space for someone else in such a state. And so that involves uh, a lot of personal self-inquiry, self-discipline, you know, self-development, and what would be considered, I think, in many uh, traditions, spiritual practice. Right. So it would involve the raising of your consciousness at the very least, we could say that much. And so that's actually like, that's kind of the unspoken truth about that study is the people that, they're, that are holding space in that study are doing it uh, with kind of what I would call like a maximal uh, love consciousness. I love that. There's no question that that's true. You know, what did somebody else call it to me? They had something, they made a phrase about you know, how do we talk about it? Profound openness. You know, profound openness that goes beyond, uh, like our understanding of such a concept that I just said out loud, goes beyond anything that we understand about neuroscience or molecules. You know, it's a lived experience. And so if we just stay within what we can describe, and what we, which is also very arbitrary, you know, it's based on a lot of assumptions scientifically, and there's mysteries underlying every aspect of it, you know, from the quantum physics of the molecules, you know, that are beneath it all, to just all the other questions that we have unanswered about our, our, what it is to be alive. So we have to be able to open up that step. So that's my, that was the point of that spiritual healing love science. I was like, the problem is, that if we limit the discussion to just the physiology and what, what has been culturally acceptable around psychology, which is a gigantic mystery, how your thoughts even exist at all, you know, and yet they talk about it like it's just, you know, run of the mill, right. it's no big deal, which is just very, it's, it's basically on the same level, leap of faith level of, you know, any number of like far out there, uh, religious beliefs and so as far as just accepting well that's just that's how we think that's how it is and that's yeah okay but we don't know what that is so to say that we know what it is is a, is a lie and just kind of inappropriate mm -hmm. so there's a there's a gigantic mystery holding the whole thing the entire time 
And so if we just limit it to this discussion, we go, oh, it's not, we don't really know enough about how emotions affect people. We don't really know enough about how stress affects people for us to make that, you know, comment or to, to tag that into this study or this research or the way this profound uh, contact with a universal love experience, whether the way that would influence someone. I don't know if we're ready to talk about that. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum that I present, this, where spiritual healing, you know, is allowed and celebrated, that's where people are actually getting better. Right, exactly. And so that's where the medicine is, is, is you know, the science is, is a study and it's very beautiful and it's important and it's, it's a wonderful exploration and celebration, but sometimes it's just not enough. And sometimes, you know, if we were being honest and you're really worried about someone that you love and you want them to get better, you're going to open your paradigm as soon as you find out that paradigm needs to open in order for them to get better. Absolutely. You know, you're going to throw that out, you know, like yesterday's newspaper. Spiritual healing process is the same as a spiritual practice. Right. The things that people do to raise their consciousness, the things they do, this emotional connection we have to spirit, to feeling, to energy, to feeling you're somehow connected. There's, some, there's something there for you, a resource, you know, uh, beyond the material that you uh, are in some kind of interaction with. And that that involves a certain sensitivity mm -hmm. to experience that, to be aware of that. And that trauma blunts that sensitivity. And when you have a society where trauma is not dealt with uh, at any serious emotional or spiritual level, at any large scale, then you can have a very blunted sensitivity mm -hmm. to the kinds of things that actually are the true like source of of moral guidance and ethics is actually like self-love. Right. So then you have this overly scientifically driven, let's say medical um, academic world that would appear very insensitive at times. Yes. Like, yeah. I think that's a pretty fair statement. Yes. And then we could, but then we're beginning to realize that that insensitivity is not just because uh, as I mentioned, you know, that somehow they're smarter or they figured it out and everyone else can't figure it out. And that that's the way it should be, that the logic and the reason guides us there. It's actually trauma. Mm -hmm. It's actually unresolved trauma that's not allowing them. They haven't had the safe space for them to get vulnerable and de-escalate to open their sensitivity up. That's so true. And... And, and, you know, and then you bring in, thank goodness, there are so many doctors now in, you know, Western medicine that are having near-death experiences and having all of these. And they're, they're coming out and, and also using these terms such as universal love and raising vibration and consciousness. So I do really feel like that there is an awakening happening. And we have to think about our future generations. I mean, by holding this trauma and I mean, by healing, healing ourselves, as you say, it helps heal the future, our, our children, our, you know, our future generations. And it is so true that 
I think people are, can be somewhat, I hate to say close-minded, I don't mean judgmental, until a loved one needs help or something happens to a loved one. And like you said, then the whole paradigm changes. And that's, that's, really, that's really important. So let's talk about this, uni- we don't have very much more time, but this universal love, this universal consciousness. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about that and the, um, the, the mist, kind of the mystical experience or the visions that, that people see, because it, it seems as, it, well, it doesn't seem, I've experienced this, that you really do raise your vibration or consciousness that you do experience other other dimensions or other other just a higher frequency so can you just speak on that a little bit first you have like your emotional existence you know your your subjective experience of life yes that you share with other humans and you have you know you you can tell when somebody's staring at you on the freeway at 80 miles an hour. That's a totally normal reality that doesn't really fit into the current paradigm, you know? And so there's people that try to explain things like that, like uh, Rupert Sheldrake's into that, and he has a whole book called The Sense of Being Stared At. And he talks about you know, he opens it up with, it's all about animal relationships, people with their pets having all kinds of experiences. And he just, he tracks, instead of having any kind of proof of mechanism, he just lists like thousands of anecdotes, like thousands, you know? So that's the beauty of right now is that with the internet, you know, a lot of times they're going to that, like around this, that instead of just trying to prove some mechanism and have all the variables controlled, well, what if you can show that like a hundred thousand people are all saying the same thing, you know, it's like, well, something's going on. Yes. And so there's that, you know, and then you have your dreams. So then you got, everyone's talking about, so you talk about the near death experience, you know, even Alexander and proof of heaven, you know, that's Mm -hmm. such a cool book. I thought it's such an interesting experience from, you know, such a highly respected person. And, this you know you could have these people this kind of nihilistic perspective they'll say to you know oh yeah when you die and you see the 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 tunnel and the light it's just a computer it's just the computer shutting down like that's all it is and then you have even alexander says well this is what happened to me when they said my brain wasn't even working and both that's it you just taking in both at their word you know the person telling me the computer shut down their argument is very flimsy it's just as flimsy as his where he tells me that he saw that there's this universal love in this higher dimension that's um, superseding the light and dark realms that are in this plane of existence in which we exist that are there for us to, in order for our free will um, to allow us to make mistakes mm-hmm. and learn things the hard way. Right. And then that's part of this loving trajectory that ultimately you know, after death is understandable. The tragedy and the, you know, the the terror and all those things and the way 
that sometimes we have, you know, that, that's a very delicate topic, you know, because yeah. people are suffering so intensely. So it's how do you even comment about that? It's not really our place to say, but then all of us have experiences within our own life where some difficult lesson ended up opening us yeah. to something that was more beautiful that we kind of, you know, we kind of shift from regretting something to kind of learning to try to appreciate the blessing of it. Yes. Yes. And so that's something along those lines. And so there's, so there is a, so a higher dimensions, you know, there's well the quantum physics and the mathematics around that, that mm-hmm. is guiding so much of our technology according to their models. Um, there's like at least 10 dimensions beyond yes. what we've understood. Yes. You know, and astrology. I love and a, yeah. the study of astrology. And I think, I think the important thing also, or I know is that I've, I've talked to so many people that have had near-death experiences and shared-death experiences, which really finally convinced Raymond Moody. He now says, I give up. You know, there, there is an afterlife. But that people who experience this, their whole world changes. They change their lives. And there's something to be said for that. It's just not this dream sort of thing that happens and you go right back to... It, it really changes lives. So I think that that speaks loudly also. Well, and, and that's, and that's part of it is that what is the, you know, what is the truth about a significant experience in your life? I mean, those are the things that change your life. Right. What is, what is the reality of what the thing is? Usually it has to do with like how it feels. Exactly. You know, is probably the most influence something you feel it really strong in your body and your being and your, that's when you go, this is really significant. Whoa. Yeah. You know, so, and it's not the idea. And that's, that's mostly how we're motivated. Right. So true. You know? And so the other part is us trying to be reasonable and careful. He's like, Oh, what if my, what if my feelings are kind of miscalibrated by some kind of traumatic experience? You know, that's this part of this whole emotional biology thing. And that's how that about all clearing ourselves up and clearing up our sensitivity so that we can try to acknowledge and recognize, okay, this is actually significant for me. This is, a, this is, it feels strong and it's healthy. Right. You know, versus like we have the other kind of situation where let's say an abused woman where they say like, because of the disturbance and the wiring from abuse and things like that, that it's more painful for them to leave the relationship than to stay in the relationship. So it's actually their feeling that guides them to stay. Yeah. You know, all the reason is saying, get out. But then, so there's a healing that has to happen for somebody able to be able to appreciate a different. Right. And I love it when you talk about using the intergenerational wisdom, and that's exactly what we're talking about, you know, using ceremony, ritual, maybe ayahuasca song the song is so important well listen we need to wrap it up but are you um could you share at the end of your book or at the end of your talk um you shared a quote by um rinpoche and for um freud do Ooh, you freud, yeah, yeah, yeah do you could I got you a share copy those? of my book on the <laughs> i'm trying to find my 
my book on the computer because yeah. I, don't I don't have a, I'm in Colombia trying to push the Spanish book. Okay. But I do have, <laughs> let me find me. I have in just a second. I should okay. have a copy of it. Okay. Um, you know, basically the first quote was about, uh, from Sigmund Freud, is him talking about his friend that's got this, his friend is a, is a religious person and this friend of his always talks about, here we go, I think I got it. Um, he says, Sigmund Freud from the book Civilization and its Tents. Sigmund says, I had sent him, an unnamed friend, my small book called Future of Illusion that treats religion as an illusion. And he answered that he entirely agreed with my judgment upon religion, but that he was sorry I had not properly appreciated the true source of religious sentiments. This, he says, consists in a peculiar feeling, which he himself never felt, which he finds confirmed by many others, and which he may suppose is present in millions of people. It is a feeling which he would like to call a sensation of, quote, eternity, a feeling of something limitless, unbounded, as it were, quote, oceanic. This feeling, he adds, is a purely subjective fact, not an article of faith. And then Soyal Rinpoche from the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying says, in the path beyond the ordinary mind, all the great wisdom traditions have told us is through the heart. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's just it. I mean, back to the, just to finish up, it's just the multidimensional consciousness, allowing the heart, the emotional, the spiritual dimensions of consciousness is, uh, uh, there seems very evident that that all the sustainable cultures that we have been in contact with, they maintain awareness of that. Right. Those people who have been able to live in a sustainable relationship with their ecosystems, they maintain that. Mm-hmm. that's what we know from the wisdom yes yes without that it's not clear that you could live sustainably in this realm right right well joe thank you so much i i really appreciate and could you just mention one more time how people can can find you if they'd like to like to hear and learn more and we will have that sure. your book fellowship of the river we'll have all this in the show notes Sure. Well, no, just the link to the study to modernspirit.org will link you to the crowdfund for the Modern Spirit Epigenetics Project. So we're still raising money, looking for money to complete. We've had enough money to collect the saliva and we have enough money to run a number of samples. But we want to raise more money so we can run more samples and have more data. And like we're saying, trying to show where spiritual and emotional healing touch the flesh is what we're talking about, really. And that's this epigenetic study and the PTSD um, healing that we just discussed. So that's all there on modernspirit.org and get the link to the crowdfund. And then I also have drjoetifer.com, which is just some information about me and the book and and eventually we'll be more active to talk about events and things like that. Okay. Taking people to Peru, et cetera. Right. Okay, well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, and um, you have a great, a great day in Columbia with your with your family. Exactly. Okay. Thank, right, thank, thank you, you very, you, very much. Bye bye. Okay. Thank you so much for listening in today. 
If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.